Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege of meeting together as your people tonight. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word, that we would know what it is that you would have us know, that you would teach and shape us to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I remember when I was in year nine, I had a very important decision to make about what subjects I would choose for that year. And one thing I was very, very clear on was that history would not be one of them. Uh, Back in year nine, I thought history was boring. I thought it was irrelevant. I thought it was pointless. I don't know, maybe you can uh, uh, resonate with that kind of thinking. But fast forward to now, and actually, I love history. So the last book I read was a history book uh, about the city of Constantinople. And in fact, I love reading it so much that I even read it on my holiday. And that was one of the highlights, <laughs> was spending time reading this book. So what about you? Are you more like my year nine self back then? Or are you more like me now in the present? So the thing about, about history, or the thing about history for Christians, is that we should really have an interest in the past, uh, in the things that have happened before us. In particular about the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because we know that what happened in the past back then, well, that has a huge impact on the way that we live now. But there's more to it than that. Since the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, well, we have nearly 2,000 years of church history. And what we can do is we can look back at that time and we can see many great examples are great examples to encourage us of people who, who stood firm on the gospel in the face of great opposition. But we can also look back on that stretch of history and also learn from the mistakes of the past to see the way that people compromised the gospel, to see the way that people did terrible things in the name of the Christian faith. I guess that's one of the reasons that we're doing this series on the Reformation to look back to the 16th century and to be really encouraged by the example of the reformers, to see the way that they stood firm on the gospel in the face of great opposition. But we can also look back at that time and and learn from their mistakes. I mean, the reformers weren't perfect. And of course, we can learn from the mistakes of the mainstream church of the day. And so for our talk tonight, then, there's kind of three parts of history that we're going to be looking at. Uh, The first part, we're going to start by looking at the book of Hebrews around the the first century AD, that reading that we had from chapter 9. The second part of our talk is looking at the life of Thomas Cramner. So each week in our series, we've been looking at the life of a particular reformer, and today we have Thomas Cramner. And the last part, just briefly at the end, We'll be thinking about the uh, implications uh, for our life today. But if we want to understand the book of Hebrews rightly, we actually need to take another step back in time, that is back to the Old Testament, to understand that the pattern of relating that God established for his people there. And we see that in the beginning of our reading. So chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, we see the author talking about the first covenant, the Old Testament, Uh, And what happened back then. And in particular, he explains to us the layout of the tabernacle, uh, this special tent of meeting. So look there, chapter 9, verse 1. 
Now, the first covenant, the Old Testament, also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary or tabernacle. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. So you look here, I've got a, uh, a diagram, very complicated, I know, of, uh, of the tabernacle. Uh, this was the tent that when Moses led God's people out of Exodus, uh, God said to him, you are to build a tent uh, with this particular layout, uh, and here's what it was. We had the uh, outer room called the uh, holy place, and then there was an inner room called the most holy place, or you may have heard uh, the holy of holies. Uh, and this uh, inner room sort of really symbolized the presence of God amongst his people. And so in that time of the Old Testament, there were priests as well. So the priests were called from among the people uh, and they were to be kind of mediators or, or representatives between God and the nation of Israel. And lots of what the priests did centered on this, well, this tent called the tabernacle and later uh, the temple, uh, the building. So we see that in verses, verse 6 and 7. So look there, verse 6 with me. So with these things, the tent set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room and he does that only once a year and never without blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people are committed in ignorance. So you can see much of the, the priest ministry was in that outer room, the holy place. But on the day of atonement, that special day, the high priest would enter into the most holy place. And so what we see in the Old Testament is this pattern of relating to God was established. So there was the holy God, Yahweh, there was a sinful people, the nation of Israel. And what would stand in the middle? Well, it were these priests that were called uh, in the Old Testament. So you can see here, this guy's got a little uh, ephod. That's what it is. There you go. Test of my uh, artistic ability right there. But anyway, there you go. So there's the priest. He would stand between God and the people, the nation of Israel. And as we heard from our reading, there was a special meeting place, this tabernacle, this special tent uh, where the priests would do their ministry. And a big part of what they did was to offer sacrifices. So sheep, bulls, goats, that kind of thing. They would slaughter them and offer them on the, on the, uh, on the altar at the tabernacle. But the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to say that this old way of relating to God is ineffective. Right? It doesn't actually deal with the problem of sin. And so we see that really clearly in chapter 10. We read this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Pretty clear, right? A little bit later, chapter 10 again. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. So the message of Hebrews is pretty clear. This way of relating to God is ineffective. It doesn't deal with the problem of sin. But that doesn't mean that this old way of relating to God was pointless. I mean, it was given by God to Moses, to the people of Israel. For two reasons, I think. 
Partly, it was to teach God's people about who God was, that he was holy and pure and perfect, and to remind God's people who they were, that they were a sinful people, that they were rebels, that they could not just waltz into the presence of God. But this whole system was set up to teach God's people that important truth. But it was also set up as a symbol or a signpost to to point forward to the future, to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ Jesus. And so what we see in verse 11 and 12 is this great high point in the chapter as we see the Messiah, Christ Jesus, come into the world. And we see of Jesus that he is the perfect priest, that he offered the perfect sacrifice and he offered opened a, a new way to meet with God. Look at me there, verse 11. So now the Messiah, Christ Jesus, the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, his death, having obtained eternal redemption. So what we see then under the New Testament is this this new way of relating to God, that in the middle now is Jesus. And he is the perfect priest. See, Hebrew reminds us that when Jesus entered our world, when he took on flesh, well, he's able to sympathize with us, with humans. He is like us, and yet he is different from us because he is perfect. He is the only one to perfectly obey God. In fact, he is God himself. And so Jesus is this perfect priest who can stand between the holy God and, well, us, our sinful people. But see, Jesus also offered the perfect sacrifice. He offered himself. The reference to the blood, well, is a reminder of Jesus' death, that he willingly gave his life a ransom for many, that he died in our place to deal with sin once for all. And he also opened a new way to this meeting place with God. Uh, The passage talks about this, well, more perfect tabernacle, this heavenly tabernacle, Uh, I think a reference to heaven itself. I mean, our hope as Christians, as we trust in Jesus, well, we look forward to life forever with God, this perfect and renewed Uh, relationship with God. So we look forward to that uh, restoration. And so what we see then in the book of Hebrews is that that great truth that we are saved in Christ alone, our confidence is in Jesus, the one who achieved eternal redemption, the one who stands between God and us. And so we have boldness to approach the throne of grace. But here's the thing, right? See, when you understand how wonderful that is and how amazing it is to know Jesus, how foolish it would be to go back to the old way of relating to God. It it seems so foolish, doesn't it? When you know of Jesus. But that was the temptation for the first readers of the book of Hebrews. They were tempted to go back to that old way 
of relating to God. And it's worth just thinking for a minute. I mean, what, what do you think would be the attraction? Why would you want to go back? I mean, maybe because it seems so much more real. I mean, you think of Jesus as the priest. We, we can't see him. We can't see his sacrifice. We can't see heaven. And yet back in the Old Testament, well, you'd go to the, the tabernacle, the tent, or you'd, the whopping big temple, and there you would see a person there, a priest with fancy clothes and a, a fancy ephod. And you could take your animal sacrifice, you could lead it up to the temple, hand it over, seeing it being slaughtered and offered on the altar. See, under the Old Testament, things did seem so much more real. Maybe that was the attraction for those first readers of the book of Hebrews. Or it could more simply just have been the pressure of others. See, around the time of Jesus, as the disciples proclaimed the good news, there were many who turned from the Old Testament, from their Jewish background, to accept Jesus as the Messiah. But as they did that, many of the Jews began to persecute them. And say, you have left behind the way of Moses, failing to see that that was pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. And so it could be under that pressure or persecution that some of those Christians were tempted to to go back to the old way of relating. But this was the reason the book of Hebrews was written, to encourage those believers to to stand firm. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, this great encouragement Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. The great encouragement of Hebrews is to to understand that because of Jesus, because he has come, he has made that old way obsolete. There is now a new way of relating to God. And so the encouragement is to stand firm. To hold fast to that great truth that we are saved in Christ alone. But if that's the message of Hebrews, let's skip forward now a few centuries to the 16th century, to the time of the Reformation. Because what we've seen in this series is that the mainstream church of the day had really lost many of the great truths of the gospel. In fact, when it came to relating to God under the 16th century church, there was God, there was the people. But what was it that stood in the middle? It was the church. And in particular, it was the Pope, so-called God's representative on earth. And so when people wanted to know God, what would they do? Well, they'd go to this new meeting place, these whopping big cathedrals that were built. And there they would speak to these human priests. They would confess their sin to the priest and the priest would declare their forgiveness. And so the confidence, the assurance of the people, if that's what they had, was in the church and in particular in the Pope. There was even a a new sacrifice of sorts. We'll think about this a little bit more next week. But as they shared the bread and the wine, the claim was that was the body and the blood of Jesus. It was prepared on a piece of furniture called an altar by a priest 
who is wearing clothes, reminding them of the sacrificial system. So you can see in the 16th century church, there was some similarities then to the Old Testament. Not exactly the same, but some similarities. But what is very clear is that the role of Jesus has been obscured. And in his place is now the church. And that's why the Reformation was such a a wonderful time in history. Because it was through the work of the reformers that these great truths were recovered as people went back to the Bible. And as they come to understood that, that Jesus is our perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice. And why it's so great for us to learn about that time in history. And so I'm going to introduce you now to our reformer of the day, Thomas Cramner. So you can see there he's sporting a very uh, lengthy, uh, lengthy beard there. Looking, uh, there you go, looking pretty good uh, in his portrait. Now Cramner was uh, an Englishman, uh, a student at Cambridge University. He stayed on and became an academic. Uh, later on in life, he, he wanted to go into the ministry. Uh, so he began to study theology at Cambridge University. Uh, he sort of changed the theology Round about the time that Martin Luther was nailing his uh, 95 theses to the cathedral door in Germany. And the idea or the thought around that time was that that Cramner and others would meet in the pub on a famous pub called the White Horse Inn. That Cramner and others, a guy, uh, Hugh Latimer, a famous reformer and others, that they would meet in this pub and there they would read the writings of Luther and the other reformers. Uh, They would take out their Bibles. They were scholars, so they had access to the Bible. They would read, they would debate and wrestle with the truths of Scripture and trying to work out how we can be right with God. And so the thought is that perhaps a, a formative time for Cramner as he settled on his Protestant convictions. But while there was a push for reform in England, there was a very significant obstacle in the way. And that was the king, so King Henry VIII, famous in history because of his six wives in his lifetime. And so any reform in the church required King Henry's support, but he was committed to the mainstream church. In fact, as Luther was publishing his, uh, publishing his writers, there was a tract that was published in the name of King Henry VIII, probably not written by him himself, but at least supported by King Henry VIII, that denounced all of what Luther had taught. And it was because of this, because of King Henry's stand against the reformers, that Pope Leo X awarded him the title Defender of the Faith. But there was one thing that King Henry didn't like about the Pope. And that was the way that the Pope who lived over in Rome, had a say about life and marriage in England. See, King Henry was married to Catherine of Aragon, and he wanted to have that marriage dissolved or declared invalid so he could remarry. Uh, Henry and Catherine were married early on, a political marriage, and it was fairly unhappy. They'd had one child, Mary, But Henry really wanted to have a male heir whom he could pass on the throne. And so he grew increasingly dissatisfied with his wife and wanted to have the marriage dissolved. 
The problem was to do that required permission by the Pope. And the Pope was unwilling to give it. And so what happened, there was this kind of lengthy debate between Rome and England, between Henry, as they wrestled over these things. But the Pope stood firm. He would not allow the marriage to be dissolved. So what did King Henry do? He said, well, I'm going to leave you behind Pope and I'm going to start my own church. And I'm going to call it the Church of England and I'm going to be the head. And so with Henry as the boss, well, he dissolved his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. By this time, he'd actually already married his second wife, Anne Boleyn. But now that marriage could be made public. Now, during this time, as King Henry was breaking away from Rome, Cramner had been given the position of Archbishop of Canterbury, so quite a significant uh, role in the church. And Cramner and others saw this breakaway from Rome as an opportunity to introduce Protestant reforms into this church. And so in particular, during this time, Cramner and others pushed for the Bible to be commissioned in the English language. So it was known as the Great Bible because it was so big, And by royal decree, it was produced, drawing on the work of William Tyndale that we heard of uh, last week, say last year, last week. And uh, so William Tyndale's dream was achieved. An English Bible was created, translated, and placed in every church in England. And as part of the Latin Mass, there would be the reading of the English Scriptures. So a huge change In the Church of England, as people now had access to the Bible in their own language. But the bulk of the Protestant reforms would have to wait until after the death of Henry, until the reign of Edward VI, his son. Now, when Edward took to the throne, he was only nine years old. uh, So there was a, a regency council that ruled in his name. And this council was weighted towards the Protestant cause. And so during this time, the reign of King Henry was a time where Cramner and other reformers really shaped the character of the Church of England to be Protestant in its understanding of uh, the Bible. And perhaps the greatest contribution of Cramner during this time was the writing of the Book of Common Prayer. The idea was that this book would be sent out to every church in England and that that book would shape the life and ministry of of every church. So you can see the great potential for change with Cramner's prayer book. And there were two things that really lay at the heart of Cramner's theology that shaped the prayer book that he wrote. The first thing was Cramner's commitment to the scriptures. So in the Book of Common Prayer, he wrote two services called morning prayer and evening prayer. The idea was the minister in the church would go to the building, they would take their Book of Common Prayer, they would take their English Bible, their great Bible, and there they would publicly read out the pages of Scripture. And they would do that morning and evening every day. So here was an opportunity for the common people of England, many who couldn't read, many who couldn't afford their own Bible, but now they could come and hear the Bible proclaimed. Had a huge change from what was happening previously. But it wasn't just those services, morning, evening, prayer, Cramner, all the different services of the life of the church. And in the Sunday services, people met together at the heart 
was the public reading of the Bible. Now, as God's people came, as the common people came to their church, they could hear the Bible read in their own language. So that was the first thing that shaped Cramner's prayer book, uh, the, the priority of the reading of the scriptures. The second thing was Cramner's commitment to the truth that our salvation is by faith alone. So alongside the Book of Common Prayer, Cramner also wrote these, uh, these homilies, these pre-written sermons, kind of like uh, you know, an old-school podcast, I guess, that kind of thing. But the idea was these uh, homilies were written, they were sent out, and the minister would get up, and rather than preaching, well, they would read out Cramner's sermon. And the first three sermons were all about well, how he can be right with God. Have a listen to this uh, Uh, This quote from his homily on salvation. So Cramner wrote this. And this justification or righteousness which we receive by God's mercy and Christ's merit, embraced by faith, is taken, accepted and allowed by God for our perfect and full justification. So Cramner here is talking about righteousness, the way that we're right with God. And he says, well, it comes by God's mercy. It is by grace alone and it comes on Christ's merits, what he did on the cross when he died in our place. And it is embraced by by faith, by trusting in the promises of God. And because of that, well, we can enjoy perfect and full justification. Because of what Jesus has done, we can be confidently right with God we can know that our relationship with him is restored and so these homilies were sent out they were read oh hang on they were sent out uh sorry they were read out by the minister and was a way of educating both the clergy and the common people of the great truths recovered in the protestant reformation and you think at this point having recovered those great truths you think people now had an opportunity to hear the Bible read. They could understand Jesus is their perfect priest. You think, why would you want to go back? How foolish it would be to, to go back to that old way of relating to God. Well, of course, that's exactly what happened. So Edward's reign, six years long, he died. And then his half-sister, sorry, half-sister Mary took the throne. And Mary was intent on undoing all the changes that had been brought about by Cramner and others. So she went back to the Latin Mass. There was this great persecution that, that broke out against those who held to Protestant teaching. Many people were burnt at the stake. And Mary was intent on bringing the Church of England back under obedience to the Pope. So when Mary came to the throne, Cramner was arrested and held in prison. But while he was in prison, Cramner recanted his Protestant faith. That is, Cramner denied all that he had taught. And you can imagine how disappointing that would have been. And imagine you'd sat in a church, you'd heard the Bible read, you'd heard the great truths of the Reformation And then to see the author deny all those things. To see Pramna publicly recant 
his Protestant faith. How discouraging, how disappointing for those at that time. Now, even though Cramner did recant, well, the Queen still ordered that he should be executed. And so as Cramner was let out to be burnt at the stake, he then, at the last moment, recanted his recantation. (laughs) And he said all that Protestant stuff, yes, that is the truth. All that Catholic thing I said, well, I said that under the fear of death. And so as he was led out to the stake, this is what he said. And for as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, talking about his recantation of his Protestant theology, my hand shall first be punished, therefore. For may I come to the fire, it shall be first burnt. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. So, you know, strong words from Cramner there. Here's a, uh, a picture in uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a bit hard to see. This is uh, Cramner here. He's tied to uh, the wooden uh, pyre. And uh, there's a guy here with a torch lighting the bottom of uh, the woods. And here, outstretched, is Cramner's right hand. The hand, that sign, that recantation. He said, well, that will be the first that shall be burnt in the fire. And so that was the end of Cramner. Now, Mary's reign didn't last that long, only five years before she died. And so the throne went to her half-sister, another daughter of Henry, Queen Elizabeth I. And under Elizabeth's rule, Cramner's Book of Common Prayer was reintroduced into the Church of England, uh, again shaping the practice uh, of each church in England. And it was under Elizabeth's fairly lengthy reign that the Church of England enjoyed stability uh, and really settled in its Protestant character. And uh, as uh, England uh, grew uh, as a kingdom, as it established far-flung colonies like like Australia, uh, it was Cramner's prayer book, Uh, that went out uh, with the clergy. So 1552, that was the the prayer book that Cramner wrote. Uh, It was revised briefly, 1662, uh, in the the reign of King James, sort of updating the language to reflect the changes, but again really reflected the theology, the shape of what Cramner had written. And uh, then that, uh, hang on, I'm going to show you, I've got show and tell today, here you go. This is uh, an old prayer book I found up up in the loft, Presented to our church in 1938. So there you go. Uh, an old book. I think, it doesn't say, but as far as I can work out, this is the 1662 edition of, uh, of Cramner's uh, book of uh, Common Prayer. And uh, you can see, uh, have a look if you like, a little bit later. Uh, so this, this book that Cramner wrote was the mainstay of the Church of England for a very, very long time. Uh, 1970s, uh, in the Anglican Church, the Church of England changed its name in Australia to the Anglican Church. 1970s, this uh, green prayer book was written. Some of you may have seen it. Some of you may never have seen it before in your life. But uh, that was used in many Anglican churches in Australia. Uh, the, the language was sort of updated to reflect the language of the day, but really reflected the theology, the shape, uh, the words that Cramner had used in his original book of common prayer. Uh, and then just a couple of years ago, the Sydney Diocese produced a new prayer book, this one here, uh, a brown one. Uh, which again, the, the sort of the language was 
uh, updated to reflect the language we use today, uh, different services that we use in church. But the theology, the shape, the ideas are, are all drawn from Cramner's prayer book, uh, written all those years before. So you can see the impact of Thomas Cramner then on the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and the way that his writings have continued to shape uh, the church of today. So having looked at the past then, looked at the book of Hebrews, looked at the life of Cramner, just briefly at the end then, what are the lessons that we can draw for today? What encouragement for our own context? And the first thing to say, really the, the most obvious thing, the most important thing uh, is to go back to the diagram we had before and to see that Jesus is our perfect priest. He is the one who offered the perfect sacrifice. The great temptation all through church history, the temptation for us today, is to put something else in the middle. Whether the church, whether the ministers, whether the religious things that we do, whatever it is, we're tempted to put other things in the middle, to put our confidence in that. But the clear teaching of Scripture is that our confidence is in Christ alone. He is our perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice. But if we think back to Cramner's prayer book for a moment, I mean, one of the great ironies of the prayer book is that at its worst, the prayer book became the hallmark of of nominalism, of outward religion. That at various times and places, people would gather together in the Church of England or the Anglican Church. They would take out Cramner's prayer book and mindlessly recite the same words over and over again each week. And you can see how sad that is, isn't it? And how different that was to Cramner's intention that people would come together for this outward show of religion, reading their religious prayer book and then going home. Now, Cramner's intention for this, that the focus would be on Jesus, that we would be reminded from the scriptures that he is our perfect priest. But as we look at Cramner's work in the prayer book, there is much, I think, that can encourage us in our context. I mean, if you think about to, to Cramner when he wrote this, the first thing he really wanted to see was the priority of the Bible amongst God's people. But we have to be, well, careful of that outward religion, that kind of tick-the-box mentality. See, in our church, right, we read the Bible publicly. Right? One of the things, the great high point when we meet together is to read the Bible together. In fact, tonight... We read it twice. There you go. We get Cramner's two ticks of approval. But it's so easy to have that sort of outward show of religion. But what matters even more than that is the attitude of our heart. So when we come to church and it comes to the Bible reading, we sit up straight. We make sure we're listening attentively. We have the Bible in our hands, looking down, trying to understand what it is that it says. That as the person up the front gives the Bible talk, we have our Bibles open, looking carefully. Are they teaching from the Word of God? But of course, it's not just as we meet together on Sunday, but that we'd have the Bible at the center of our life, that we'd committed, sorry, be committed to a midweek gospel team, 
committed to our own practice of reading the Bible for ourselves, convinced that the Bible, this is where we can know God. This is where we can know Jesus and the great truths of how we can be right with God. A great strength of Cranmer's prayer book. And we do well to make the Bible at the centre of our own life together and as individuals. But one of the other great strengths of Cramner's prayer book was the importance of the prayer of confession. See, under Cramner's liturgy, the, the practice or the, the service that he wrote, every time God's people met together, they would publicly confess their sins. They would read out this prayer of confession that Cramner had written. And so no longer would they confess their sins to the priest who would offer forgiveness on behalf of the Pope. But no, together they would publicly confess their sins before God. And having done that, the minister would take out their book of common prayer and read out what's, what's called the absolution, this declaration of forgiveness. This reminder that because of what Jesus has done, you can know forgiveness. I think that's a, a great encouragement for us in our context. I think one of the dangers for us is, is that we can forget that God is a holy God. We can think of God as a kind of a, you know, a duddery old grandfather in the sky. Or we can forget that we are a sinful people, that we are rebels who deserve death. But again, we've got to be careful of that, that outward show of religion, the tick-the-box mentality. I mean, we could say, okay, from now on, we're going to have a prayer of confession every time we meet together, right? Then we'd get Cramner's, well, triple tick of approval, right? But it's not about an outward show. It's about the attitude of our hearts. Do we recognize who God is, that he is holy and just and pure? Do we acknowledge who we are, that we are rebels, that we deserve death? But friends, as we see that, as we see our needs, we can be reminded of our perfect priest, the Lord Jesus, the one who came into our world, the one who offered a perfect sacrifice his life given as a ransom for many to deal with sin once for all so that we can have confidence and look forward to the hope of heaven. The good news we see from the Bible is that we are saved in Christ alone. How about I'll lead us in prayer and give thanks to God for that. Our Father in heaven, we come before you acknowledging our sin. Father, we know that we are rebels, that we have fallen short. We fail to love you, we fail to love our neighbour. We know that you are holy and pure and that we deserve your condemnation. Father, help us to be honest about our sin before one another and before you. And yet, Father, as we reflect on these things, may we turn in faith to the Lord Jesus. May we hold fast, may we trust in his promises 
that we can find forgiveness because of his death on the cross. Guard our hearts from religion. Guard our hearts from our confidence in being in anything else apart from the Lord Jesus, apart from his death in our place. And as we know that great truth, well, may we boldly approach the throne of grace. May our confidence always be in him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.